Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In May 2009, the long-running civil war in Sri Lanka ended with the defeat of ethnic Tamil insurgents by the Sinhalese-dominated Sri Lankan armed forces. The manner of this defeat was a mass atrocity event. Tens of thousands of ethnic Tamils were trapped in a thin stretch of land as the military bombarded the area, killing tens of thousands of ethnic Tamils. Since then, there has been no accountability for the atrocity crimes committed, nor has there been any meaningful post-conflict peace and reconciliation efforts. In fact, many of those most directly involved in this atrocity are now the most senior political leaders of the country, including the president of Sri Lanka, Gurubaya Rajapaksa. Research has demonstrated that countries are more vulnerable to atrocity crimes if there is a recent history of atrocity and no real peace or reconciliation efforts. As my guest today, J.S. Tisanayagam, explains, this is certainly the case in Sri Lanka. J.S. Tisanayagam, who also goes by Tissa, is a journalist who recently reported a story examining how the government of Sri Lanka is responding to the COVID-19 crisis in ways that have deliberately exacerbated ethnic and religious tensions in Sri Lanka in a bid to assert Sinhalese dominance over ethnic minorities. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Stanley Center for Peace and Security, whose project Red Flags or Resilience examines COVID-19's impact on atrocity risks. The project uses journalism to explore the connections between the coronavirus pandemic and factors for risk and resilience to mass violence and atrocities around the world. You can view Tissa's article on Sri Lanka and other works of journalism as they are published by visiting resilience.stanleycenter.org. And now here is my conversation with journalist J.S. Tissanayagam. In May 2009, what happened was not quite the end of the conflict. It was the end of armed warfare but not the the political conflict as a whole. The political conflict predates 2009 and continues even today. And I think that's very important. What happened in 2009, that in around January that year, uh, the government forces, that the military, uh, was able to force fleeing Tamil civilians into an area known as a no-fire zone. There were three successive no-fire zones, and they did that after asking the international NGOs, including the UN that was present there, to leave, so that it could be what is known as a war without witnesses. Mm. And once they did that, uh, although they told the civilian population that they would not be shot at and they would be safe in these no-fire zones, they proceeded to bombard it from the air, 
as well as shed it from the sea as well as the land. So uh, this led to uh, to atrocious uh, number of casualties. Uh, the food lines were targeted, hospitals were targeted, and this is deemed uh, a war crime, a crime against humanity, and in some quarters uh, as genocide. If I recall, this area was about the size of of Central Park in in New York City. Um, you know, trapped against a, a beach and. At least forty thousand people were were killed when you know the the government just unleashed fire on this area. Uh, that is correct. Uh, interestingly, uh, there is no consensus in the figure of the dead. Mm. Uh, there were two UN reports. One report said around forty thousand. That was the UN special advisory group uh, that was uh, that was put together by the Secretary General which said there were about 40,000 who died. Then Charles Petrie, who did an internal of, uh, report for the UN about, about how the UN had fared during that conflict, uh, said 70,000. Mm. Local uh, figures say that it's up to about 146,000. So there is no consensus. The, I must also say that while this was happening, uh, the government reduced the number of people who were there in terms of the numbers that they gave the world outside, which led to almost zero or very little uh, food and medical supplies going into those areas, which meant that a lot of people died of starvation and a lot of people died because of because they didn't have medical care. So that was also another huge problem. So... You started this conversation by noting that while in May 2009, this armed rebellion defeated, was defeated, ended, uh, the conflict persists. Uh, how in the years since 2009 has the conflict persisted, uh, particularly in areas which have large Tamil populations? Right. So uh, immediate after the war, uh, the fighting came to an end, there were, there were certain uh, very important happenings which I have to speak about before I go to the more long-term uh, issues. Uh, soon after the war ended, or as the war was ending, uh, Tamils who finally escaped from the no-fire zones entered the area that was in charge of the government. And many of them surrendered, did all of them surrendered. But while they surrendered, they were told uh, those who were um, who had anything to do with the LTT, who had worked for the LTT in any capacity at all, uh, had to separate themselves from the main group. And since the LTT was running a de facto state, many of them separated themselves and surrendered to the military. And this included a priest who said that he, he didn't work for the LTT, but he said he would go with these people because they were being taken elsewhere. What happened was that many of them were never seen again. And that accounts for the large amount of disappearances that took place just uh, during, the, during the war after these people were had surrendered to the military. In the same way, uh, some other major uh, senior LTT cadre who surrendered under a white flag uh, on the uh, instructions of the government uh, uh, 
were then later taken and there is, there is pictorial evidence that many of them were shot. They were shot assassination style. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them includes a child uh, who was the leader of the LTT's son, the Velukula uh, Pravakaran's son. At the same time, there were also, uh, you know, uh, lower rung LTT cadre who were who, say, who were said to be rehabilitated. They were sent to rehabilitation camps where they were systematically tortured. There is evidence of that because people who uh, these guys who managed to go overseas uh, told human rights organizations how they were tortured, and one of those allegations was that some of them had been injected with poison, which had killed some of them, disabled others, and made others ill. So all these things happened soon after the war was ended, and which was which uh, had uh, implications and cast a shadow on what would happen later. So in terms of the longer term issues where the conflict has been continuing, uh, I think the main reason, actually for this, you have to go back in time. Because the main reason this conflict started was that Sri Lanka, which is a mosaic of different national groups and religious groups, was unable to manage diversity constructively. The whole nation building project soon after uh, independence in 1948 from the British was to make one group, which is the Singhala Buddhists, who are a majority, but certainly not the only group of people who lived in Sri Lanka. But it was a project, a nation building project that the uh, the Singhala Buddhists thought could uh, would be would be undertaken by making them the dominant group uh, and then uh, and a kind of an elite. So this has been the project, the nation building project that uh, the Singhalis, uh, the Singhala Buddhists especially, have been undertaking for the past more than 50 years. So when the war ended, this project continued. So there was a continued and deliberate plan to assert Sinhala Buddhist dominance over areas uh, in which there are large, if not uh, Tamil populations and large Muslim populations, which we'll talk about as well. And, And this project continued and continues to this day. And it is this context uh, that COVID uh, erupted and added additional stressors onto already uh, fraught relations between the Sinhalese-dominated government and Tamil minority populations, particularly in in these regions. Can you, uh, I guess, just describe and, and discuss how the government approached its COVID response in these areas? COVID-19 began spreading big time around March 2020. So what happened was that just before that, uh, the the government which had been in power uh, when the LTT was annihilated or the LTT's military machine was annihilated in 2010, and which came, went out of power in 2015, resumed power uh, after an election. This is and the Rajapaksa government. That is, uh, you know, the, a, the Rajapaksa was the defense minister who largely led this uh, offensive that was horrifically brutal, and, and now he's the president. 
is the president. He was the he was the defense secretary at, at that time, mm-hmm. and his brother, who was then the president, has now become prime minister. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a family uh, company, as it were, you know, that rules Sri Lanka. And uh, so soon after the government, uh, soon after the the pandemic began spreading, uh, the the government thought that this was a good excuse to consolidate power. And the way it thought of doing it was by mobilizing the military. Now, the military uh, was one of the, was the, was the main way after 2009 that the government of Sri Lanka was able to govern or at least uh, 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 project power in the Tamil majority areas in Sri Lanka, which is the northern and eastern provinces. Because before that, soon after the war was ended, and I'll be brief with this, uh, the, the Tamils asked for power sharing through federalism, which was denied. The government continued to concentrate power in the parliament and in the presidency. Two, it also refused accountability for war, for war crimes and uh, crimes against humanity. Which meant that there was there were issues which were not addressed. So what the government did between 2009 and 2020 was to use the military to uh, uh, to govern parts of the north and east. So when the uh, coronavirus spread in in 2020, it used the infrastructure that it had tested in the north and east in other parts of the country as well. So he did a couple of things. The first thing was to make Shavindra Silva, who was the who is the uh, army commander, uh, and who is charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity, because he's uh, because he was head of the 58th division, which is charged with uh, with these crimes, and who who was uh, in uh, in uh, February 2020 designated and sanctioned by the U.S. government, and he and barred from entering this country because of these, these same crimes, he was made head of the task force looking after uh, or spearheading the fight against COVID. So just, just to emphasize this point, the man who the government put in charge with its COVID-19 response is someone who is currently under U.S. State Department sanction for war crimes committed against Tamil civilians. That's perfectly correct, yes. yes. And you know, needless to say, this does not seem to engender much confidence among populations that you're seeking to serve and ostensibly protect from this pandemic. And if I am a Tamil civilian, I will view with extreme skepticism any recommendation coming from this war criminal. Precisely, yes. Savindra Silva becoming becoming the head of the uh, uh, task force had different uh, uh, sort of uh, acted differently in different parts of the country. In the north and east, uh, especially among the Tamils, it, it was looked upon as a uh, as uh, uh, as an act of uh, greater repression of a, uh, from, from what, has, what was already going on. And while, the make, while making Shavindra Silva the head of the task force was one thing, the, there was also militarization at other levels as well. 
And one of those is very interestingly, where one where in a place called Mulati, that is uh, in the, the Tamil the, the, uh, Tamil dominated northern province, the 68th division was has been was tasked somewhere in January and February uh, to decontaminate areas that had been uh, contaminated by the coronavirus and also educate the public. Now this, now according to the Defense Ministry website, the 68th division is the same is the same division that that entered uh, uh, Mulatibu and attacked a place called Pudukudi Ripu during the war as the eight uh, as Task Force Eight. So mm. Task Force Eight becomes the 68th division. Mm. And the interesting thing is, the, the, there is evidence that. The land forces that were attacking Pudukudirpu destroyed a hospital there. And there is a doctor by the name of uh, Varadaraja, Dr. Varadaraja, who was there during and, uh, and administering to the sick, people who were caught by the crossfire, who, who testifies that the, that the, the Pudukudirpu hospital was, uh, was shelled by the military. And this is also... Uh, 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 there is further evidence because the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, in a report in 2014, also confirms this. So it's very I, ironic that the people who destroyed uh, 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 a medical facility mm. are now the same people who, who continue to be stationed there and are giving medical advice as well, to and- how. To yeah, because they are, they, are, they are telling the people, educating people how to, uh, you know, um, stop being contaminated, uh, being infected by the coronavirus. And they are decontaminating places that have been uh, 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 infected by the coronavirus and so on and so forth. So and, well, and, ironic. I mean, and, and as you write in, in your piece, people in these areas fear, rightfully so, that rather than doing contact tracing, many of these units from the military are simply collecting intelligence uh, to be used you know, against them and to instill fear in the population. You know, it seems as if, uh, as you said earlier, COVID was a pretext to further militarize uh, much of, of this area. Yes, uh, that's correct. In a sense, when you look at the way the Sri Lanka government has been responding uh, to the coronavirus pandemic, it has been through a kind of a law and order uh, approach. It has been a law and order approach that it has adopted to counter the this coronavirus. You know, so one of the things that it has been doing is, uh, you know, uh, as I have as I said as I detail in my in my story. Uh, you know, um, got uh, the, uh, the the intelligence state intelligence services to do contact tracing and stuff like that, which means that they they come into homes and and make and on the pretext of trying to find out what had happened, they gather information about people who are there, who is in, who is out, mm. uh, and the status of the families and so on and so forth. Two, they also. Uh, enforce the curfew 
And the enforcement of curfews can be very brutal. And that is not only in the North and East, it is worse in the North and East because the Tamils regard the military as an enemy. Uh, but it's also in other parts of the country. So much so that a couple of days ago, uh, uh, some pe- uh, a family who had been released from quarantine came back home and found they had no food. Mm. So the guy had got onto the road to get to go to a place where he could get some food. He was seen by the military and, uh, and by the police. He was beaten and left on the road. And then he was stuck by a bus. Mm. So, I mean, that's just an example. But it shows how, uh, how, how the government's response has been basically militaristic and using law and order to combat this, uh, uh, combat, uh, combat, the, uh, combat the coronavirus mostly. Uh, and also one other thing, uh, it has also used the, the, corona, the, the, uh, the police and the military to surveil uh, social, uh, social media postings and stuff like that to see who, who is writing stuff against the government. And they said that whoever, the, the journalists should report the truth, which means you have to write sunshine stories about how the government is responding to the crisis, and it, which it is not. And whoever does not do that is liable to be arrested, and arrests have been made. Another important aspect of the government response that you detail in your book was the government's mandate that I believe no longer exists, but did exist for a long time, that people who uh, die of coronavirus or are suspected of dying of coronavirus be cremated. And this was a affront to Sri Lanka's Muslim population whose religious strictures you know, abhor that practice. Can you just discuss that mandate of burning, cremating bodies in the context of what you described earlier as a government intending to assert its own sort of ethnic and religious uh, dominance on on the population? Uh, yes. So uh, the 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 effort by the Singhala Buddhist elite to consolidate power was not only at the expense of uh, of the Tamils by disempowering Tamils. It also did that in uh, by uh, attacking Muslims. But this happened, or uh, the, the attacks against the Muslims, the state as well as the Singhala Buddhist elite, happened after uh, the, the, uh, the uh, civil war against the Tamils came to an end in 2009. So, uh, uh, um, well, it started with you know the cultural practices of Muslims like halal food and all that being uh, attacked by Buddhist monks and saying that we shouldn't have these practices. The cultural practices of the Buddhist uh, of uh, Muslims were attacked first, and then they started talking about uh, how uh, how the uh, that that the Muslims were an exist- existential threat to the. Uh, to the singular Buddhists, and so on and so forth. Uh, all these sort of reached a climax with the uh, with the East bomb, uh, East attack uh, against the churches and uh, against hotels by single extremists, uh, by Muslim extremists. So, in this context, when the government of Sri Lanka said 
uh, after the covid uh, after covid 19 began spreading that it was going to stop cremations uh, that it was going to stop burials because through that groundwater could be uh, contaminated and lead to the spread of the virus uh, it was uh, uh, it was contradicted by both sri lanka as well as international experts who said this, this is not hap- this doesn't happen so there is a general feeling that this that this was not uh, ignorance of science but it was a deliberate attempt by the state to coerce the muslims by attacking their cultural practices in your piece uh, you note that the absence of any meaningful accountability process or reconciliation or peace building mechanisms uh, following a mass atrocity like what happened in 2009 uh, is a risk factor for future uh, atrocity crimes and atrocity uh, events. In your piece, though, you also identify some interesting examples of resilience uh, to this trend. Can you describe um, what some of those examples of resilience are in terms of how um, organizations, groups, and individuals on the ground are fighting uh, against this kind of oppression Uh, in a peaceful way? Yeah. Yes. So when when the coronavirus began spreading in 2020, starting March, the government of Sri Lanka tried to use it to uh, to intensify repression, and one of the ways it tried to do that was by trying to protest, uh, trying to stop mass protests uh, for various for whatever our people were protesting against. And the and and the, and what what the government said was that if people gather in in places. It would mean that uh, the coronavirus would spread, and therefore, uh, it uh, and people should not do that. The public should not do that. Uh, So there are a couple of examples where the people who realized that this was just uh, a pretext to stop protests, because there were other protests that were in favor of the government, which continued to happen without a problem. So this, so the so people realized that this was being done purely to suppress protest against the government, and one of those was in uh, uh, in November of two thousand and twenty, where uh, which is known as Mahaviratnal, that is the Great Heroes Day, where where Tamils commemorate the people who died during the twenty uh, six year uh, civil war. So the government of Sri Lanka used the judiciary. Uh, and told uh, local magistrates not to issue uh, permits for these rallies and for uh, for for uh, commemorations and memorials to take place in public, and they did. But what happened was that although the government uh, government's uh, uh, requirement that people don't uh, don't meet in public was respected by the Tamils. The, the the military and the police uh, tried to move in and stop private commemorations as well. And that was resisted. I mean, there are people arguing and shouting at the police. And whereas in a democratic country, that so those things are not taken amiss, 
in a country like sri lanka where there is a deficit of democracy people arguing with the government and defying the government is seen as an act of great courage because it is mm. and especially if people, you're a, especially if you're an ethnic minority exactly exactly so these people argued and they refused uh, to uh, to cow down uh, before the police uh, and they continued to have uh, their private ceremonies which uh, which showed a defiance of the god another thing that happened was that there was a march that was organized by tamils and Mus- tamil and muslim activists tamils because they believed that the government wasn't taking notice for their demand for greater accountability and muslims are asking that they are, uh the and at that time the 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 order to uh the, to to resume burials had not been given and and the, the mandate for cremations was still on so they were protesting against that so there was a a march that was organized it was known as the p2p march from uh, a place called putuvil in the eastern province to a place called polihandi uh, in jaffna and is in the northern province so uh, this was a protest where both the tamil and uh, muslim activists priests politicians and the public joined together and what it showed was that despite the government coming up with uh, judicial orders and various other things to stop it that people together could peacefully demonstrate their anger against the government despite what the government tried to do and although there was all these protests uh, and uh, sorry uh, although there was the, the the government first tried to use judicial orders and then tried to physically stop people from marching by uh, by the army trying to tussle with them this this uh, the the uh, march proceeded and uh, and ended with a huge rally in in this place called polyandi so that was uh, that it showed that tamils and muslims getting together could be a huge disruptive force which the government would have to take heed so so you have this example of of pluralism and and pluralistic values being asserted uh, in this march uh, you also have examples over the past several months of the government increasingly uh, you know being repressive against uh, ethnic and religious minorities in the coming you know weeks and 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 months are there any key indicators or inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you um whether or not the risk factors uh for atrocity crimes in sri lanka may be sort of more acute than acts of of resilience well i think it will depend a lot on how the uh, the vaccine rollout takes place mm. uh now uh, uh, as i noted in my in my piece for 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 the stanley center the uh, vaccine there was a early vaccine rollout somewhere in february and uh, it went on for a couple of weeks or about a month or so and then it stopped because there were internal issues and when that happened there was a lot of resistance from uh, uh, from the public in uh, in kilinochi which is a, a, a northern city Uh, which is a, a, a town in uh, the Tamil majority north, because there was fear uh, uh, that they didn't know what would be injected through this uh, uh, through these vaccines, because many of these people 
new LTT card who who alleged that they had been poisoned early on mm. in twenty in twenty sixteen. So they don't know what it is that they are being injected. And at the same time, I must say that at Kalinachi Hospital uh, in twenty fourteen, mothers were were, the, uh, were the, there was. Uh, you know, uh, hormonal contraceptive inserts placed in mothers to stop fertility, uh, which is again a uh, uh, walk, uh, uh, which yeah. is a uh, which is an act of genocide. So all these things has, has created a lot of fear in a place like Kudinochi because they know these things happen in other parts of the north and east as well. There is fear because they don't know the, what the government is giving them. You see, once distrust is created. Uh, between the public and the government, whatever it does, even if it tries to do something good, it takes a long time for the for for, for people to to um, uh, to trust it and for for trust to to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So I think the way the government is going to do the uh, um, the vaccine rollout in the next couple of months, it has it has resumed it, and how is going to do that is going to be. To be one very important uh, way uh, of, uh, I mean, how it goes could be an inflection point. The other thing, of course, is that uh, the government is also trying to, uh, you know, restart uh, uh, um, garment factories, working garment factories, and so on. Despite people being scared that they are being uh, that uh, it's a hot, uh, it's a hot spot for the spread of the virus. So, uh, if the government insists that people start working there, uh, it could once again create tension because people know, because people are worried uh, that they might uh, catch the infection there. And although some of them might not be getting paid, they they do fear that sort of thing. The third thing, of course, is how the government is going to manage information because people are really worried about. About what is actually happening, no one knows the exact number of people who have died, the exact spread of the the disease, because the government controls the press. I mean, it's there is also the privately owned media, which is run by people who are single Buddhists and who have certain uh, agendas which might not go hand in hand with what the the Tamils and the Muslims want to know and stuff like that. And some of them also hand in hand with the government, working with the government. So there is no truth. Uh, at least the truth tends to be distorted when it comes out. So people want to know what is happening, and if the truth of what is uh, of, of what they can see is, uh, differs with what the government is trying to put out through the media and through press conferences and so on and so forth, it could lead to a to a lot of unrest. It might be more in the north and east because people have been protesting there much longer than in the single south. But it could be an issue that we might have to look into uh, if it happens. Well, Tissa, thank you so much for your time, for your article, which I encourage everyone to read, and uh, for your analysis of the situation. It was uh, very helpful. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Tissa. And you can view Tissa's article around which this conversation was based 
by clicking the links in the show notes or by visiting resilience.stanleycenter.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.